Welcome to the podcast of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. I'm your host. My name is Peter Kranke. I'm professor of anesthesia from the Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care Medicine, Emergency Medicine and Pain Medicine in Würzburg, Germany. I'm also the chair of the ESAIC Guideline Committee. And today we will be speaking about guidelines on neuromuscular blockade. Uh, which were just published in the EGA in November 2022. And we have invited Professor Thomas Fuchsbude from the Department of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care of the University Hospital of Nancy, France. And Professor Fuchsbude is the chairman of the task force leading the guideline on neuromuscular blockade. Welcome. Professor Fuchsbude has a long connection uh, with neuromuscular relaxants, and he started his career um, uh, while studying medicine in Gießen and Geneva, and then completed um, his anesthesiology training in Geneva from 1989 to 1996. And then he started uh, his PhD program in Homburg-Saar with Professor Larsen, and completed this um, part of his life with the so-called habilitation, the PhD thesis. And since 2002, he's working in Nancy, um, and his current position is full professor since 2010 and director of the surgical center since 2012. Um, he has had various roles within ESAIC as associate editor with the EGA, and then various uh, positions in research committee, and now he's leading the uh, task force for the neuromuscular guideline. What is rational behind the development of this guideline in 2022? I mean, considering uh, the fact that neuromuscular relaxants are used for decades, and also the monitoring is not new, it should all be known by the community. Why do we need the guideline in 2022 telling us how to manage neuromuscular blockade. Can you tell us a little bit about the rationale behind the development? Indeed. Thank you for the question. It's extremely surprising that we still need in 2022 a guideline about the management of neuromuscular block. Uh, but unfortunately, the current practice in Europe, but as we will see a little bit later, not only in Europe, is still disappointing with regard to new muscular block management. As you may remember, Professor Kranke, the EGA, sponsored by the European Society, recently published a large observational study about the reality on clinical practice of new muscular block management across Europe. And uh, Professor Kiermaier from Munich was the first author of that uh, observational study. And they included more than 200 hospitals in more than 22 different European countries. And more than 70,000 patients were uh, included in that large observational study. And what they reported was that more than 70% of patients in Europe in our days in more than 70% of patients in Europe in our days, the decision to extubate the patient is exclusively based on clinical science. The decision on whether or not the patient 
previously exposed to new muscular blocking agents has sufficiently recovered is exclusively based on clinical signs in mm. Europe in our days. More than mm. 50% of patients being exposed to new muscular blocking agents perioperatively were not reversed at the end of the case. And un not surprisingly, but unfortunately for the patient, this poor practice had clinical consequences. As reported in that large observational study, there is an inacceptable high incidence of residual paralysis and also an inacceptable high incidence of postoperative pulmonary complications. These alarming uh, results of, the, of this observational study was motivation for the European Society to ask to develop guidelines on appropriate new muscular block management. And indeed, uh, these guidelines should not be necessary because everything we need to manage correctly our patients is available and everything we need to know is known since more than 50 years at least. Beecher and Todd uh, published in, two, uh, in, one, in 1952 or 53, few years after new muscular blocking agents have been introduced in clinical practice, they published a survey reporting a more than 20 times higher incidence of mortality uh, with this new technique, including new muscular blocking agents. And the, the, the main reason for this increase in mortality was, of course, incomplete recovery at the end with, uh, with re respiratory problems. In the past, very rapidly, our colleagues uh, realized that we need to monitor uh, object that we need to monitor the effect of new muscular blocking agents and the so-called St. Thomas's uh, Hospital Nerve Stimulator was developed in the late 1950s. And the concepts based on monitoring and reversal were report, uh, proposed repeatedly over the last 50 years. Unfortunately, uh, in clinical practice, this message is not really arrived until now. It is surprisingly, this, this is a, this, these are circumstances that are a little bit surprising, but welcome. It is not only the European society that realized the need to uh, develop uh, guidelines on the management of new muscular block. By chance, the American Society of Anesthesiologists asked at the same time their members to develop also guidelines on the management of new muscular block. And these guidelines will come up a little bit later in a couple of months they will be published in uh, anesthesiology also. So the need to develop guidelines and to improve practice on monitoring uh, management of new muscular block is, has been realized by, both, by, by the both most important international anesthesia societies. Thanks for that excellent introduction. Uh, Professor Fuchsbruder, Thomas, do you have an idea why we are so reluctant to pick up the recent developments in pharmacology and also monitoring. I mean, it's um, a little bit of pity, I think, that we don't use the substances that are available and the monitoring devices. Do you have an idea why this is not enthusiastically picked up by our colleagues around the world? It is surprising, but... I have no rational explication. I'm lecturing in this field since several decades, and I'm often confronted with colleagues that are trust on their clinical judgment and feel it much more better than, than any other thing, and they trust on their clinical judgment, and they're difficult to convince. Nevertheless, there are several barriers that currently probably 
make it more difficult than it should be. And we have to overcome these barriers. The most important barrier is probably the availability of quantitative new muscular monitors in any single OR where you give general anesthesia, including my relaxants. And uh, the second one is probably uh, the fact that these monitors should be uh, considered as routine monitors for every patient that is exposed to these compounds. And as the, the, the ECG monitor, the saturation, CO2 monitor, things like this that are essential, uh, we should also consider the, the, the new, muscular block new muscular block monitoring as essential. In the department where I'm working, uh, these monitors are handled by the anesthesia nurses as they handle the saturation and everything like this. So it is the nurse that takes that takes care that every single patient that is exposed to my relaxant is by default monitored. If he is not monitored, if he should not be monitored, then the physician has actively say, I don't want to have this patient monitored, which of course nobody is doing. So we have to monitor us in every single every single department, in every single OR. And it is up to the nurses to connect them at the beginning of anesthesia. The rest is a question of uh, of education and of uh, yes, of mainly of education to make sure that uh, it is also followed. Yeah. So you strongly argue that it should be considered a vital um, device, a vital monitoring, not just a nice to have monitoring that is available on the floor, but is available for every patient undergoing surgery and receiving neuromuscular blocking agents. Is Indeed, that correct? It, it is not a nice to have device, but it, a gadget, it is a vital monitor. And if there was any doubt, this doubt is no longer existing after our guidelines, because we could show that monitoring objectively with a quantitative monitor lead to a significant reduction in the incidence of residual paralysis and postoperative pulmonary complication. And this is true when comparing quantitative monitoring with qualitative, qualitative monitoring, but this is also true when comparing quantitative monitoring with no monitoring. So clearly, the figures are, are self-speaking, and the reduction in these complications, residual paralysis and postoperative pulmonary complications is evident. Yeah, my my impression always is that uh, we some people don't care about um, um, postoperative uh, colorization because in the PACU they don't see the the problems. The patient uh, breathes normally; they don't have pain, they don't vomit. But uh, the consequences and the dramatic consequences may occur later. Uh, in the recovery process, but that's just my my impression. But coming back to the guideline um, and um, uh, the manuscript you delivered, what about the group composition? Who uh, contributed? Can you tell us a little bit about the initial challenges and how you brought up the, this huge topic? I mean, you wrote a, a book chapter in Miller's Anesthesia. This broad topic to a um, a decent amount of a question that can be answered during this process. Peter, as I mentioned at the beginning, our aim was to take the right consequences of this large observational study. That means we want to have a robust uh, guideline that focuses on relevant clinical topics that need to be respected 
to manage our patients safely. It was we we only focused on the most relevant questions to make sure that these guidelines can be implemented across Europe and may be followed and can be followed in all European countries uh, correctly. So it was kind of basic consideration, the the, 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 the the basics that you need to respect to manage your patient safely. That was our aim. And if you want to uh, develop guidelines in general, you need two type of collaborators. Ones who know, or actually even three different groups of collaborators. Ones who know the core problem. In our case, it, these are the so-called twitchers, guys that are scientifically working on new muscular block management, twitchers. Uh, the other experts becoming more and more important in that context are people that know the method to develop guidelines. This is, a, this is no freelance game. There are strict rules to follow if you want to come at a good end with this process. So you need methodologists that are able to, uh, to guide you with the development of these guidelines. And the third group, which is also important and probably sometimes underestimated, are those who are clinically working in that field and know the problems uh, the, the real problems in the ER to make sure that what you are asking for questions, what you are trying to respond with your guidelines, fits really on the on, on what we need in the ER. So that's why we composed our group of these three different experts: twitchers, methodologists, and real anesthesiologists working on a daily basis. And we had a group of fourteen people that uh, were selected uh, to collaborate. Uh, in this in this in this group yeah yeah do did you encounter any problems during the contact uh, conduct of the guideline during the establishment of the group what turned out to be um the major challenges during the creation of this uh, nice guideline the major problem was obviously not previsible because we started to think about this uh, guideline project in 2018 and uh, the COVID pandemic came in 2019. So the, 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 the idea initially was to meet at least several times physically to discuss it and to develop our guideline project. And this was completely, completely not possible for at least two years. So we have to organize the way we work together differently and uh, many of us were involved in other things, in more vital things than guideline development at the time. So that was a big problem uh, at the beginning. So we, 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 we just started when the, when the pandemic starts. And then we had a kind of, of lap of six or nine months where we are all occupied by much more other things. And then it was relatively difficult to find the red file and to re, re, uh, reactivate that group and to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to continue to develop the guidelines. Yeah. But at the end, we had a very reactive group and we had a good, a good feeling inside that group. It is important if you do this kind of work. And uh, finally, I suppose that we worked efficiently together uh, to develop these guidelines in our, in our specific group. Yeah, even with the constraints. Uh, but we are used to use uh, video teleconferencing system. So that was definitely uh, also a good chance or a good um, preparation uh, to effectively uh, work together 
um, with long distances between the partners. Indeed. Can you can you elaborate a little bit on the main topics? I mean, what turned out to be the main question? What did you try to address in the guidelines? Basically, three different chapters that you want to cover with these guidelines. The first one is, uh, do we need my relaxants uh, for the airway management? So are my relaxants useful to facilitate endotracheal intubation? And what is the best choice on my relaxants for the so-called rapid sequence induction intubation? Is there succinicola and still the gold standard or are there alternatives? This is our first chapter, which is my relaxants and airway management. The second chapter is, there was a lot of discussion over the last years that deep block uh, could, some, could be something that may improve uh, surgical outcome and surgical conditions, especially for laparoscopic surgery. And we want to know whether this is really true. And if yes, for what particular surgical procedures this deep block concept may apply and for what specific procedures it is pro- probably less important. And this third topic, which is the most important topic, is how to avoid residual paralysis and postoperative pulmonary complications. And this chapter has three different or two different sub-chapters. The first one is, is there a different difference in type of monitoring, quantitative versus qualitative versus clinical science? And is there a difference in the efficiency of sugamadex compared to neostic mean? These were the three chapters. And for each of these three chapters, we developed what we called PICO question. PICO is, you know this better as me as an expert in that field, a kind to formulate standardized questions to make sure that what you're looking for fits, allows you to answer the question you're asking for. PICO means the patient, P is for patient, E is for the intervention, C is for the comparator, and O is for outcome. So each of these questions we developed were formulated on this PICO format. Yeah, yeah. Some people argue that um, the most difficult part is what comes after publishing a guideline. Do you have plans for implementation? Are there any further steps in preparation that this guideline really makes an impact on patient care? Indeed. When I was asked to uh, coordinate and take the lead of this this, um, task force, uh, I was aware on the amount of work that that may uh, implicate, and I was only willing to do this amount of extra work if it will have a chance to be implemented in clinical practice, and thus if it may contribute to change clinical practice. It makes no sense to develop the best guidelines on the world if there's no real effort to implement it in clinical practice and to contribute to change clinical practice. And this is the one and only opportunity to to, to really take the right consequences of this large observational study and contribute by an evidence-based guideline to change the practice in Europe, indeed. There is, there is implementation is a big issue and we have several several accesses that we want to develop to implement the guideline. The first axis is, of course, communication, 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 communication. The guideline has been published or will be published in the EGA. The guideline is available on the ASIC website. Uh, we are currently working or r- realizing a podcast 
that will contribute to create the awareness about the existence of this guideline. There are other projects like webcast or e-learning modules that will be developed in the near future. There is a in strong collaboration with Dan Longcroix, a colleague and friend from Paris, who uh, has developed some ideas with the implementation process. We will contact the different national anesthesia societies to talk with these national anesthesia societies, present their guidelines, look what are specific complications in different countries and how can we can we uh, contribute to overcome these barriers. And at the end, there's also, uh, we are currently uh, developing a kind of scientific uh, project related to the implementation of this guideline process, where we will in the near future ask departments that will collaborate with us to make a survey of the current practice, then make an implementation process and control or make a second survey about their post-implementation practice and look whether we can like this uh, also contribute to change this practice. But the most important is that these guidelines were developed on, as I told you, an evidence-based method. Uh, We formulated the questions before. There is a clear method that is described in detail, and there is a clear reproducible analysis of the literature. And by doing so, we could formulate our results on an evidence-based basis. And as I told you at the beginning, the U.S. guys, U.S. friends from the ASA did the same. They also asked some questions close to our questions with a method close to our method and with the same literature. And both processes were completely uh, independent one of the other. We were not aware of their uh, guideline development and they were not aware of our guideline development. And at the end, the result is the same. So you Mm. can see that the U.S. also found that quantitative objective monitoring is the key the key issue of any successful management of new muscular block, they formulated it as we formulated it. And they also found the same differences in the efficiency between Sugamadex and Neostigmine as we found. So these two key elements are supported by both mm. international mm. anesthesia societies worldwide. And that should give the power to, to, to go straight forward with the implementation of these guidelines in current clinical practice. Yeah, so that uh, each guideline supports the other because they are making the main uh, takeaways or main messages. So uh, they were de- developed independently. We were not aware of their process. Yeah, and we were yeah. Not aware of, uh, uh, they were not aware of, of our process. But, but nonetheless, yeah. it, it, it yeah. validated the method that was applied. So yeah. there is no, there should be no method logical uh, discussion because we supported their findings and they supported our findings and the findings are straightforward. Quantitative monitoring is the key element. Would that also be um, your key message or the message put in a nutshell, carefully monitor each patient who received uh, neuromuscle blocking agents in in a quantitative way? Is that um, the main message for the busy clinician? Indeed, the, main, the, the key element, the key message, the, the take-home message, the one thing that should be uh, respected after this guideline is that every single patient exposed to new muscular blocking agent should be objectively, quantitatively monitored. Only if you do this correctly from the on-begin-on, 
you are in the situation that at the end of the case, you can decide that your patient don't need to be reversed because you have the information from your objective monitor that the patient has sufficiently recovered. Or you can decide that your patient has a slight residual parabolysis and neostigmine may be a good choice in that situation. Or you have a deep, moderate, or shallow block where we know that neostigmine is less efficient and this patient should receive an appropriate dose of sucamatex. So these decisions can only be made correctly if you monitor your patient objectively from the on begin on. Yeah, thank you, um, Professor Fuchsbude. It's shortly before Christmas and coming back to the guideline, what's on your wish list with respect to this new guideline? That what we, do you envision for the next year? <laughs> yeah. that, that we have enough power and enough energy to push the implementation process and enough support from the national societies, basically, uh, that we can push this implementation process forward. It is not very extraordinary. It's just to monitor the patients with monitors that are available, that are, that are fine working. And if we succeed this, we will have a huge impact on patient safety across Europe. And mm. that would be a wonderful mm. goal for the next years. Thanks, Professor Fuchsbude. So, Thomas, um, if I understood it right, um, carefully monitoring each patient who received neuromuscular blockade in a quantitative way is also the main um, takeaway of the guideline. Is that true? Yes, indeed, that's true. All right, yeah. And since it's shortly before Christmas um, at the time of the recording of uh, this podcast, what is on your wish list with respect to this new guideline for the next years to come? That, that we have enough power and enough energy to push the implementation process and enough support from the national societies, basically, uh, that we can push this implementation process forward. It is not very extraordinary. It's just to monitor the patients with monitors that are available, that are, that are fine working. And if we succeed this, we will have a huge impact on patient safety across Europe. And mm. that would be a wonderful mm. goal for the next years. Thanks, Professor Fuchsbude, for elaborating um, on the new guidelines. You see, uh, dear colleagues, it count, we count on you uh, when it comes to implementing these guidelines. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. The ISAIC releases monthly podcasts on the ISAIC website and various other streaming platforms. And we hope you will join us for the next one. 